something to say. Hello everybody, how are you all doing today? My name's Charlie, you might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset, and I'm sorry this episode's a little bit late this week. Yeah, okay, so this is the first week that we're going to a weekly schedule, and we're going to be doing this through the end of November because I'm doing National Novel Writing Month this year, and I'm not going to have really the time or the energy to do daily episodes through that period. Though there may be some bonus episodes that come out throughout the month, you know, that I would record on the fly just to kind of give you updates about what's going on. And we'll reconvene in December to figure out whether or not we're going to stay weekly or go back to daily. Okay? So, having said that, uh, I meant for this episode to go out Monday, but we had to go to St. Louis to do some meetings, and so that's... uh, like basically almost two and a half hours there, two and a half hours back, plus the time we were there. I was kind of wiped on Monday and I didn't have the energy to do a show. Tuesday, decided to do a show and we were having intermittent power outages because of reasons. <laughs> really, that that's what they told us. We're, we're having problems. Okay, what what kind of problems? Like the sun is shining. It's a beautiful day. There's barely even a breeze out. What are these problems? <laughs> we're just having problems. We'll have them fixed as soon as we can. And so the power and the internet were both unreliable yesterday. So yeah, no episode that. So I'm sorry. Today the power has been stable. I haven't had to go crazy out of the way to do any meetings. So yeah, today we're going to be talking about something that I, I've been thinking a lot about lately. And I haven't really heard others talking about to any great extent, though I'm not going to say that this is an original topic by any stretch of the imagination. And if you know of anybody who has done an episode or a video like this, please share it with me because I would like to get as many ideas on this as I can because it's something that's really been kind of digging into me. And that is the difference between nostalgia and inspiration. Because I think it's very easy to confuse the two things. And one of the easiest ways I think there is to see the difference between these is in music. I think there's a huge difference between nostalgia and inspiration that's fairly obvious in certain artists. So for example, Bruno Mars is a nostalgia artist. And I don't say that to take anything away from Bruno Mars. I actually enjoy a lot of his music, but it is clearly meant to invoke a nostalgic feeling. So, Thrown Out of Heaven is a police song. It sounds like a song that Sting would have written. It sounds like a song the police would have performed. It's a police song, but it's performed by Bruno Mars and it's an original work, but it's meant to invoke that sense of nostalgia in you. So as soon as you hear that, All of your love, if you have any, for the police from the 1980s comes flushing back into you. Finesse is obviously a nostalgia track for basically 
80s to early 90s pop hip-hop. So if you were a fan of Bobby Brown or any of those early bands that were coming out, then I Cardi B's rap on there reminds me a lot of like Biz, the, the popular songs by Biz Marquis and Young MC and even a little touch of MC Hammer in a way. And it's immediate. Like you hear it and those nostalgia triggers flash and you're suddenly back all the way back. And if that was something you loved then, or if it's something that you love now, that nostalgia is triggered in you and it's something that you love. And again, I'm not denigrating him for doing this. I I think it's a talent to be able to so laser target those nostalgic feelings, which is why a song like Uptown Funk from Bruno Mars and Mark Ronson felt so different in a way because it had that kind of jazzy thing that Mark Ronson likes to do, that kind of funky jazz thing that he does on a lot of his work. But it has those really strong nostalgia notes coming in from Bruno Mars, and it made for a really interesting track that blew up in, what was that, 2015? Now, you compare them, you compare Bruno Mars to a band either like um, Nawaz or Greta Van Fleet. And for me, like Nawaz, when I listen to Nawaz, they give me such a strong Prince vibe that it's not even funny. Or if we want to talk about Prince vibe, Janelle Monae's latest album has a lot of strong Prince vibes on it. And the brilliant thing about them is they don't sound like Prince songs. They're not nostalgic. Like, they may make you, remind you of how Prince would produce a track or how Prince would perform a track, but they're not exactly a replica. They're not entirely there to just hit those nostalgia triggers. And I'm thinking, especially of a song like, you know, Way You Make Me Feel, right? That song sounds kind of like a Prince track, but it also sounds like a Janelle Monae track. Greta Van Fleet is often, way too often, compared to Led Zeppelin, and that's just because the lead singer's voice does bear a striking resemblance to Robert Plant. It, it does. And that's because he grew up listening to a lot of 70s rock. But the thing about Greta Van Fleet that is really powerful, and also I'd put bands like Saturn in this camp, you can hear the 70s in their album. Like, When you listen to Saturn, you can clearly hear sounds in his voice that remind you, well, at least remind me, of King Diamond, of Ozzy Osbourne. You know, there are a lot of classic rock, hard rock, heavy metal singers that you can hear influenced his style. But they don't hit me in that nostalgic sort of way. Like, when I heard Greta Van Fleet for the first time, I... I heard Highway Star, which I think is probably the first track a lot of people heard from them. And it blew me away. Yes, because of its sound, it it sounds kind of like 70s rock, which is something that I have a strong love for. But more than anything, it sounded fresh. Like, for all of the production and guitar riffing and vocal prowess that goes into a band like Greta Van Fleet, those are qualities of 70s music that kind of disappeared in the backlash of the 80s. 
and then disappeared even further in the backlash of the 90s and hadn't really resurfaced. And this is them resurfacing. It's it's more a penchant for a certain type of rock guitar and a certain type of vocal. Lyrically, I feel like Greta Van Fleet in particular is much more heavily influenced by bands from the 60s than from the 70s, because most of their songs are about peace, love, and getting along. They, they have some of those, you know, hey, baby, you know, I kind of like it. But their m- music does not, I don't feel, is not designed to make me go, I like Led Zeppelin, therefore this band is cool. Because like Safari Song and some of their other tracks, I mean, you know, Dark Smoke Rising, that that's not what I would expect from that kind of a band. And I feel like they're coming into their own. And they're not a nostalgia act. They're, they're kind of like Lenny Kravitz was in the 90s. When I first heard, you know, Let Love Rule. Oh, I love 60s kind of hippie rock. And Let Love Rule. Oh, yeah. That hit me in that sweet spot. But it wasn't a nostalgic thing. It didn't sound like he was aping John Lennon or Jim Croce or... Even, you know, Jimi Hendrix, all of whom he garnered a lot of comparison to. But he kind of fit that vibe. Like, you could tell that those were his inspirations. You can tell who their inspirations are. And if you like those inspirations, then you'll like the band, probably. And the reason I go to music is because music is short. Like, if you don't know any of these artists that I'm looking at, you can find a five, three to five minute track buy them to compare them really quickly and i wish we were living in a world where i could play snippets from the music so you could hear what i was saying but sadly we do not live in that world yet maybe one day now when it comes to fiction i there's a big problem with a lot of this in that i think a lot of especially mainstream fiction is designed to be nostalgic i mean the entire dc extended universe Felt to me like one big, hey, remember when that happened? Remember how much you liked that? Like, yeah. Remember this? And it just felt like they were pointing to things like, oh, we're doing Death of Superman. Remember when Death of Superman was a thing? Oh, here's a Burt Robbins suit. Remember Death in the Family? Oh, everybody remembers The Dark Knight Returns, right? I mean, this is kind of a riff on The Dark Knight Returns. And that's why they didn't work, is they were just kind of riffing on, hey, remember this? And, yeah, there's no quicker way for a story to fall flat than just to kind of sit there and go, hey, remember this thing? Wasn't that so cool? Yeah, man, I just loved that when that happened. And so we're kind of doing something to make you think about that so that your love of that thing will just kind of sloth over me. Because, yeah, no, that's not how good media works. That's not how good fiction works. And you can see this over and over again. I think some of the weakest seasons of Supernatural, which is a show that I enjoy more than I should, felt overly nostalgic. They felt almost homage Like, remember this horror movie? Remember this series from the 80s or 90s? Remember this thing? And they're less about the characters. They're less about the world. They're less about building up something of its own and kind of uh, pointing elsewhere this is where um once upon a time lost me because i really liked that show at the beginning because it was a fresh and original take you could clearly see the inspirations because for goodness sakes that's snow white and that's the evil queen and that's rumpelstiltskin and 
but they were so their own character that it didn't feel like it was just like, hey, remember how much you like the evil queen? Here's the evil queen. No, Regina felt like a character in her own right, and so did everybody else in the show. Like, you could clearly see their inspiration. But the show didn't feel nostalgic. Until it did. Oh, you know Mulan? You know you loved Mulan? Here's Mulan. Remember how much you loved Maleficent? Well, here's Maleficent. Remember how much you loved Wicked? Because Disney really wants to own The Wizard of Oz, but can't. Because somebody else does. And so they have to tiptoe around and try to make you think of The Wizard of Oz without saying stuff from The Wizard of Oz because the books are public domain, but the movie isn't. Yeah. And it became this nostalgia fest that didn't... Like, it was the Peter Pan... It was just after the Peter Pan season when they did Frozen. I think it was Frozen that came after that. Because the Peter Pan season, I thought, was really interesting because it wasn't just... Remember how much you love Peter Pan? It was an interesting twist on Peter Pan and Captain Hook and all of those characters and kind of flipping it on its head where Peter Pan was the villain. And that was interesting to me. And I really liked what they did with Hook. And then it just kind of became nostalgic. And characters started appearing and being used in ways just to kind of go, remember them? Didn't you like them? And that may just be my read on the series. Other people might disagree, but... That, that's one of the reasons why I fell off watching the show, is it started feeling more like, instead of subverting and playing with the characters, like when we met the dwarfs for the first time, it was more just, hey, remember this thing that you loved? We're doing that now, too. Yeah. And that's not helpful for anybody. That's not how good fiction works. And as somebody who's trying to write a book and set up a series and do a whole world-building thing... I find myself thinking about this a lot because there are a lot of things that I absolutely love that I want to see in this setting, that I want to see in this world, but I don't just want them to be nostalgic callbacks. And some kind of are, but, you know, I wanted the pilot and engineer for the Kuranai, the uh, ship that they're flying around on, to be a callback to Star Wars. And so I kind of bent over backwards to name the character Chewie, because I wanted his name to be Chewy, And in so doing, I had to learn a lot about Spanish and Latino, Latinx culture. And while my setting is not on Earth, I, I tried to build some of that into the, you know, two down con- culture and make him a fully fleshed out character, which he, I hope, is. But there's other things that I want to be in this story, that I want to be in this setting. I don't want them to just be, hey, remember when you watched this movie or read that book or did that thing? And so I find myself in kind of a desperate panic trying to figure out how to do that, how how to allow those things to inspire me, those elements from the Final Fantasy games that I would really love to see in here, and those elements from Dune and the Dragon Riders of Pern and... You know, the works of Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft. And and there's inspiration in this world from, like, the Heaven and Hell album from Black Sabbath. And the Magicka album by Ronnie James Dio. And songs by a thousand artists. I mean, my, my conception of Sister Death wouldn't be what it is without Danzig's Her Black Wings. You know, blackest of the black, darker than night, come to me. You know, just... These are things that inspire me. And some people might see those, and some people might not. And 
I'm fine with that. But I don't want them to be all people see when they see my fiction. I don't want my fiction to be just a nostalgia bomb. Because one, then it doesn't have anything of its own to say. And two, it's not building something. I mean, if I'm going to write nostalgia fiction, I might as well just write fan fiction. And that's not what I'm doing, and that's not what I want to be doing. So if I'm not going to be just writing fan fiction, and I'm not wanting to just write fan fiction, how do, how do I do this? And I don't know if that's a question that you've ever asked yourself. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode. Because I think it's easy for us to get off track and to find ourselves sitting down and allowing our inspirations to flow. I mean, one of the characters for one of the books coming up in the series is heavily inspired by the sorceress from He-Man. There are a lot of ways that I could go with that. But I don't want it to just be Tila Na. Because if I wanted to just write about Tila Na, I could just write He-Man fanfiction. But that's not what I'm wanting to do. So... I think if you have listened to this podcast long enough, you know exactly where I'm heading next. So what's a really good example of fiction that uses its inspirations well, and yet doesn't turn into Avatar? You know, that James Cameron movie that is basically Dune, but not in a desert, but in a forest with dances with wolves thrown over over the top of it? Oh yeah, and we love mechs. Don't you love mechs? Let's throw some mechs in there. And everybody loves dragons, so let's definitely do a dragon. We're just not going to call it a dragon, we're going to call it something else, because then it's like, cool. Yeah. See, that's one of my issues with Avatar, is Avatar is one of the best adaptations I've seen of Frank Herbert's Dune, except for it takes place in a forest, not a desert. And the Fremen are kind of still the Fremen, but I do miss the worms. Don't get me wrong, the various dragon species that they populated the air with are cool. The new version of Baron Harkonnen I don't really like. Eh, the new Reverend Mother needs to have more of a Benny Gesserit order behind her, but it's Sigourney Weaver, man. How could you not love that? Especially if you're me, you know, just slap Sigourney Weaver into a movie and I'll probably go watch it. Yeah, maybe look at a different avatar, you know, of the last airbender variety. I knew I was going there. Because you can see those things that were nostalgic for the creators of that show very clearly in The Last Airbender. They loved wuxia and various martial arts films. You can see everything from... There, the Blue Ghost was clearly inspired by things from the, ninja, from the American Ninja and the Ninja um, franchises. And if you've never seen those, oh, they are terrible. They are horrible, horrible, horrible movies. But they're so much fun. At least they were. I haven't watched them in a very long time. When I was a kid, they were some of my favorite things, though. And I can see elements of the Bruce Lee movies in there. I can see elements of various westerns when it gets a little John Wayne. But it doesn't feel nostalgic. I can see elements of a lot of fantasy fiction as well, from the works of Ursula K. Le Guin, her Earthsea books. I can see hints of them in there in a very interesting way. And gender-swapping, actually. Some of the characters that remind me of her work, but it doesn't feel nostalgic. And that's because you can see that they loved martial arts and they loved fantasy fiction. And they went, well, why don't we do the martial arts as fantasy fiction? Why don't we do the martial arts as magic? And so each style of martial arts took on its own character. So instead of just having the Shaolin style and the Wudan style and the Imai style and fill in the blank style, you have the earthbenders who practice very specific forms. You have the airbenders who practice their forms but 
it's not just the moves and the actions and the fighting style. They get to control the element associated with it. And so the world building takes the elements, those nostalgic elements, those parts that they were inspired by, and puts them through this grinder that allows for new fiction to come out. See, I see a lot of people talking about how Avatar The Last Airbender was inspired by Asian culture and Asian stories. And I, I, I think that this is one of those few times where you can say Asian because I can see elements of Korean fiction and Chinese fiction and Japanese fiction peppered all throughout it. I think you can even see some Bollywood influences in it. But I also see a lot of the American Western, a lot of the American Western, a lot of the American fantasy story. I think there's a lot of Tolkien... I, I don't think we would have Uncle Iroh if we didn't have Gandalf. And I think Uncle Iroh is an interesting kind of play on what if a character was somewhere on the spectrum between a Chinese, you know, head of a, either a house or the master that teaches the martial arts style and Gandalf. And without both of those ideas, I don't think we have the character of Iroh because he is such a complete mashup of the two. And that, I think, is the secret of Avatar's success. And it's one of the things that I've tried to employ in my own fiction. Yes, I really like this thing, but I don't want to just find a way to riff on that thing. What if, oh wait, this thing that I like from this story or genre is similar to that thing that I like about that story and genre. So what if I put them together? What does that make? How does that play out? How does that change them? And that, I think is at least a beginning technique for starting to turn your inspirations into inspirations for something original, something yours, and not just something nostalgic. There's a group of creatures in the world that I'm writing in that I call the Seiryu, which is short for Yosei, which is a kind of Japanese spirit, and Ryu, which is Japanese for dragon. And so I smashed them together. And originally, when I was doing my early notes about them, I called them Yosei Ryu. And I thought that that was just too much of a mouthful. And I dropped the Yo. And Seiryu sounded cool. So they're the Seiryu. They're fairy dragon. And they're heavily inspired by a lot of different things. From the, the slimes from the Dragon's Quest games. To the Moogles from Final Fantasy. To... Things that I loved when I was a kid, the Smurfs and the Littles, and the pets from um, the Avatar series. But they're more than that. Like, the more I think about them, and the more I spend time contemplating how I want them to exist in the world and in the stories, the more I see the elements that I like in those other properties, in other places. And go, ooh, what if we added that to them? What if we layered that in? What if we layered that in? And for some people, when they encounter them, they're probably just going to see them as whatever... If they connect them to something outside of my fiction, which hopefully I can write them well enough that that's not a primary experience. But, you know, a lot of people will probably connect them to the Moogles from um, Final Fantasy, from the Final Fantasy games. I want them to be more than that. And so by layering in all these other things and playing with all of these other ideas of things that I love and ideas that I want to play with, various fairies from different stories and settings and all this other material, right? There's actually a lot of, uh, well, you know, you don't have to worry about getting them wet or feeding them after midnight 
Uh, there's a lot of elements from what I love from Gremlins in them as well. Because they're a cute thing in a harsh universe. And so what I find myself doing when I'm working on characters or just including them in passing is playing with this idea of a cute thing in a harsh universe and that its cuteness is part of its defense mechanism and taking those elements of things that I like and playing with them and mashing them up with other things and mashing them up with other elements from other stories and figuring out how to make them unique in mine. Avatar does this very well, The Last Airbender that is. Those characters, I can see some of their antecedents. I can see some of the characters that probably inspired each and every one of them. But because they probably in the original drafts of the setting were collages of those many varied characters, they couldn't help but take on their own personality. I can think of a thousand tragic boy heroes and a lot of their qualities are clearly seen in Aang. But Aang is different. Aang's sense of humor and his ability to be tragic and flawed and silly and funny, that's something very unique to him. Because a lot of characters either get to be one thing or the other. Like, you can't, a lot of characters aren't allowed to have those pensive moments, those moments of sheer rage. I mean, think of Aang on the cliff after he's found Gyatso's body, right? Those moments of just sheer rage. He's the guy that a couple episodes earlier we got to see go penguin sledding. And the guy who wanted to ride the giant koi. And the guy who used the unagi to put out a fire. Because of course he did. And of, because he wasn't adept at waterbending. You can see all of these different facets of his personality. And you can kind of see characters that inspired those and brought those about in him. But at no point does he feel like a nostalgic character. I can't put my finger on one character that he reminds me of. I can see a little bit of the Luke Skywalker in him. I can actually see more of Luke Skywalker, like, in uh, Sokka. Like, Sokka is, what if Luke Skywalker and Han Solo were the same character? Because he tries not to care, and he pretends to be just this kind of rational materialist who's kind of goofy and trips over his own feet and can't get anything done. But unlike Han Solo, he grows out of that. But I'm Ching. Yeah. You guys know my feeling about Han Solo by now, right? Hopefully. But Star Wars is another one of those movies that I think, despite itself, ended up doing that. And I don't think it would have done, it would have done that without the sequels. And I really don't think it would have done that without the prequels. And I know people are going to jump on me about that. But wait, 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 wait. Listen. A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi are great movies. They are. But the characterization of the universe is slim and flawed. The Jedi are basically, I don't know, samurai? They kind of fight like samurai. They kind of dress like samurai if samurai only wore cloth armor. There's not much to them. The same thing with the underworld and the criminal syndicates. They're just kind of there because we needed a bad guy gangster. The Empire is just evil. Flat out. Evil. And I don't think Star Wars would have been able to grow into anything much beyond that if it hadn't been for the prequels. And love them, hate them, I don't care. What the prequels did was expand beyond the original inspiration. In fact, if you actually watch 
the original Star Wars trilogy, you can kind of see it as an homage to a lot of things that came before it, especially A New Hope. But even in the parts that come after, Yoda is not a really fleshed out character. Yoda is kind of just a cipher of all of the wise men that you find in all fiction. He, he's Obi-Wan 2.0, but because he talks weird, he's a little bit more like one of the characters from either a Chinese action film or a Japanese Jedi Geki, which by the way is where the term Jedi came. See, whether you like them, hate them, love them, despise them, the prequels and the prequel era content fleshes out the world of Star Wars in a way that it had never been fleshed out before. We get to see the Jedi and all of their flaws. We get to see them as something that's kind of their own thing. They're no longer just kind of, I don't know, samurai with telekinesis. Just kind of how they are in the original trilogy. We get to see them as a bit more complex with internal politics and motives and reasons for doing things. We get to see the fall of the Republic and how it became the Empire. And we see how it is built on fear. And by watching them build the fear that would come to dominate the Empire, it doesn't seem so bizarre that when we see Tarkin and the rest in the boardroom and A New Hope, fear will keep the systems together. Well, fear is what the entire Empire was based on. It doesn't seem so irrational and must, must have, you know, mustache, I can't say mustache, mustache twirling villainy like it does when the, you first watch A New Hope. The idea that there would be a bunch of leaders of the Empire sitting in a room going, well, they'll just fear everything and that will keep them in line. <laughs> That's very, you know, muhaha when it stands alone. When you see the actual fall of the Empire and how the Emperor slowly seeded various fears throughout the Republic and how fear built the Empire... Well, of course, it's just natural that they would assume that they could control everyone through. It's not just a mustache-twirling villainy. It's what worked. We, we demonized the other, the other, the other. When there weren't others, we manufactured them. Does that sound familiar? But at the end of the day, when all is said and done, that meeting makes a lot more sense when you watch the prequel. Like it or hate it, it's true. Then you add in the Clone Wars, which really fleshes out the world and the universe that Star Wars takes place in. And a lot of the strange nuance of the original trilogy make even more sense. And now we have a world that we can build things in because we have an understanding of the underworld. We have an understanding of how life is on other planets. We actually have an idea of cultures existing on these other planets. I mean, what is the culture of Tatooine? I can't see anything distinct about the, their culture. What makes the Empire the Empire? I don't know any of these things. But post-prequel, I have a feel for what it's like to be from Naboo. I actually get a better feel of what it means to be from Tatooine, which helps me understand Luke Skywalker better. I have a feel, especially when you add the Clone Wars in, of what it feels like to be Corrin or Moncala. And all of those disparate influences that were, let's be honest, nostalgia callbacks in the original trilogy because they just kind of evoked the idea of something darth vader wore kind of black samurai armor with some techno babble on it but understanding the rage and the pain that exists underneath that armor i understand why he could just so callously destroy anyone who stood in his 
And I know there's some people that think that that takes away from his mystery, but I don't think there was a lot of, for me at least, there wasn't a lot of mystery to his character in the first place. He was just that evil samurai. He's that guy that the Ronin have to gather together to go fight. Because reasons. He's a bad guy. And we get, get like the most token of bad guy reasons. He killed your father, Luke. Oh no, he is your father, Luke. Yeah. And I'm not saying that the original trilogy isn't good. I would never say that. Star Wars is one of my favorite things ever, and I'm sitting here talking to you, recording this, surrounded by Star Wars posters and Yodas. My newest Yoda, right there, staring at me. <laughs> I mean, I love Yoda so much that friends of mine, if they see a Yoda and it's not too expensive, will just pick it up and get it for me because they know how much of a Star Wars fan I am. But as far as a world goes, you need the prequels. Because the prequels are the first time Star Wars goes outside of that nostalgia thing that it was doing. We expect that from our fiction now. In fact, if Star Wars came out now, if Star Wars came out today, I don't think it would be as big a hit as it was back in the 1970s. It was such a hit in the 1970s because, well, there hadn't been anything like it for a while. Flash Gordon hadn't been on the screen for a while. And now, all of a sudden, the kids had a new Flash Gordon that they could go see. And the adults who remembered Flash Gordon and had nostalgia for it had a Flash Gordon that they could go see, a new Flash Gordon that they could go see. And you have to remember, that's what the original Star Wars was. Lucas wanted to do a Flash Gordon movie, but could not secure the rights to it, and so decided to kind of do his own thing. And as soon as you know that, well, yeah, we we definitely have Mungo in the dust as the Death Star, and I is Vader or the Emperor Ming. The Vader's kind of Ming, but then that kind of gets passed on up to the Emperor. Luke is very much Flash. The characters start lining up really well, don't they? And that's one of the things that made it such a big hit, because it was not just nostalgic for Flash Gordon, but those cowboy movies that you like. It's coded in the same way. Our hero wears white, our villain wears black, until, of course, when they don't. Yeah, all of that nostalgia coding is very strong from the 1970s. And I know when I was a kid... I saw Han Solo as a cowboy. He's very clearly a cowboy. But he's not that John Wayne kind of cowboy. He's that Clint Eastwood kind of cowboy where you don't know which side he's going to be on until he finally picks it. And you think he's going to be on the good side because it's a cowboy movie and they're generally on the good side, but you're never quite sure, right? I mean, think back to, you know, Fistful of Dollars and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, all those good movies right? And that nostalgia is so strong in these films. It's so prevalent through these films. We forget that now because they became their own thing and we're so divorced from the Flash Gordon. In fact, when we think of Flash Gordon, we think of Queen in the 1980s reboot of Flash Gordon, which was in and of itself a reaction to Star Wars, recursive loops and all that. But no, Star Wars didn't really become its thing until the extended universe, which is why so many fans became upset when it was just cast off, and the prequel. And I'm not saying that you have to write a prequel to every story that you write. Don't think about it like that. That's not what I'm saying at all. But you can write a prequel to every story that you write. It's called backstory. When you're creating a character, when you're creating an ethnic group, when you're creating a religion, when you're creating a profession, whatever it might be, remember the elements that you need to hit, right? You need your signifiers that make it very easy for people to understand quickly what it is you're talking about. Are they good guys? Are they bad guys? Can we evoke an archetypal image very quickly in somebody's mind so that they get it fast? And then you backfill with depth. 
And you get that from writing backstory. You get that from actually enculturating your characters, their profession, their, the towns that you're in, in the setting. That's how you get there. That's how you make it happen. That's how you move your fiction beyond just being nostalgic and being into being something inspired by those. At least that's what I found for myself. And I can see the elements and the moving parts within my own fiction. And so I have to hand it around to other people because I know what directly inspired me to do certain things, where certain characters came from and where certain ideas arose. And so it, it, it's hard for me to see that in my own fiction because, you know, when I do this well, which is why I pass it around to people that I trust and get their opinion, what I might need to do to make things better. Because if you really want to do something that's going to be amazing, at least this is my personal feeling about it. You don't just want to create something that is nostalgic for nostalgic's sake. You don't want to create something that just makes people go, Oh yeah, I loved that thing back then. Therefore, I'm going to like you. I mean, this is what April Daniels did really well in the Nemesis books. The way the books open are very superhero-y, which immediately clicks me in. I like superhero fiction. Oh man, so Sovereign's kind of like Superman. All right. I'm down with that. I like Superman movies. I like Superman comics. I, I can get down with this. And then it just uses those signifiers just enough to make you understand quickly the world that I'm living in, the world that this story is taking place in, the rules. And then we go deeper. And as we go deeper, it diverges. And, oh, this isn't DC Comics. Oh, this isn't Marvel Comics. This is its own thing. This is its own kind of superhero. This is its own kind of character. And then it takes on a life of its own. And April Daniels did a very good job with that. Signifiers remind us of so that we can easily and quickly grasp what a character is. This is why Darth Maul, for all the hate that the prequels get, Darth Maul is generally agreed on as a fun character. Because you get him immediately. You see Darth Maul, he's death incarnate. The horns, the face paint, the, you know, the ritual tattooing, everything about him. Oh, you get it. You get it instantly on first look. And then you go through everything that happened with Darth Maul through both the Clone Wars and Rebels. And you get to know him as a character to the point where Darth Maul is probably my favorite villain. I mean, really, seriously, is probably my favorite villain. I know it's going to upset a lot of people that like he dethrones Vader in Star Wars. But oh, his story is so much more compelling to me. Held together by his hate, saved by his brother, who then gets killed right in front of him. A failure in everything that he does, does, which drives him into further and further madness. Yeah. By the time we meet him again on Rebels, and we get to see how his story actually ends. Oh my goodness. Darth Maul is such an amazing character. But you start with the signifier. You see him, and oh, you get him immediately. And then you go on. You have to be careful with those immediate first impression things. Because it gets to be a little tropey if all your villains have a scar. And talk like Jeremy Irons. <laughs> Sorry, not a fan of the Lion King. Mainly because I think it's a waste of Jeremy Irons. And I love Jeremy Irons. But there you go. That at least is my idea of how you differentiate. How you make something change. And not just be pure nostalgia. Not just remind people of things that they like. But you make it your own. You can either do mashup which helps a lot especially if you can find things that complement each other really really it's a good technique a valid technique to work with but the other one is to just 
do backstory. Think about how they fit into the world and start making your pieces fit together. The more you make your pieces fit together, the more everything's going to make sense. And there you go. So I'd love to know what you think about this. And if you know anybody else who's done either a podcast episode on this topic or a video somewhere, please share it with me. I, I, I this, this is a topic that's very much been on my mind lately, and I would like to hear other people's opinions about it. On that note, if you would like to give me your actual opinion on it, if you go to anchor.fm, you can download the Anchor app, follow me, Project Shadow, and you can send me up to a one-minute voice message. Keep it clean, and if it's good, I'll use it on the show. It can be a comment, it can be a question, or it could be a suggestion of a topic that you would like to see on the show. That would be awesome. I would love to hear from you. You can also follow me on social media. Best on Twitter. I'm C.E. Dorset on Twitter. You can find links to all of my social media, as well as everything that I do over at ProjectShadow.com. If you got an extra buck and you can cast it my way, that would really help me out a lot. Depending on the app that you're listening to me on, there will either be a button that says support, support on Anchor, or if you go into the show notes, there will be a link that says support on Anchor. If you click that, you can support me at the $1, $5, $10 a month levels. That really does help me keep these shows coming. I like doing this, but you got to pay bills. The problem of living in a capitalist state, it really does help me out, though, if you can support me there. Or if you want to support everything that I do, you can go to patreon.com slash cedorset and support everything I do over there, including the fiction. If the app that you're listening to me on allows you to rate the episode or the podcast, please do that. That tells the algorithm to share me to more people, and that helps the podcast to grow. And the podcast has been growing, and I thank you to everybody who's been helping with that. Speaking of which, if you know anybody who'd be interested in this podcast, please share it with them. That would really make my day. I think that's it. I hope you like the new format. Episodes are a little bit longer, but you're only going to be getting one a week unless there's a bonus episode until at least December. So do let me know what you think about the format and what all you would like me to be talking about on the show. Until next time, don't forget, have the fun. Bye.